Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Happy U.S. Grand Prix Eve, Mr. Hamilton. It is finally here after what seems like a million years. Formula One has returned to the shores of North America. I'd say we're literally hours away from FP1, but since it's not like a huge time difference that we're used to in either Europe or Asia or, Asia or the Far East, we're in a more normal time zone, so it's a little bit further out, but I'm, I'm starting to ramble, but that's only because I'm super pumped and excited for this race on Sunday afternoon. But like I say, I'm rambling. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic, and I think I'm just as excited as you are about finally seeing Formula One cars in our hemisphere and something moderately close to our time zone. Tomorrow is going to be challenging, my friend, from a work perspective. I'm <laughs> typically dialed in Monday to Friday, but having having free practice one and two right there, so close, it's just in my phone. I've just got to open that app. It's going to prove a, a little bit challenging, but I'm otherwise doing fantastic. Just super excited that we have another race and a race in the US that, and we talked about this a little bit during Spaces tonight, the anticipation for this is just off the charts, more so even than 2012. I think there was a lot of noise. There was a lot of stress. There was lawsuits. There was controversy leading right up to the U.S. Grand Prix in 2012. And it was a sellout in 2012, but I think more because of it was a novelty. But I think two years without having had a Grand Prix in North America and with this massive infusion of Gen TTS, there's this built-up, pent-up demand and and anticipation for for this event and honestly i think liberty can probably deliver we have a razor thin race for the world drivers championship it's it's all teed up to be a fantastic weekend well let's just recap lewis has some points max has some points he has slightly more points than lewis and there's six races to go what more could you ask for and how can you tell that i came prepared to the show tonight but you well know like, <laughs> i know research is so important in this uh, this industry and uh anyways uh, moving right along i was just going to say that uh, I'm really hoping, obviously, for a good race in terms of the championship, but also I'm hoping for a good race because there's going to be so many eyes on this race in North America on Sunday afternoon. So I'm totally hoping that the theme of this race is that afterwards we're going to sit back and, and, and reminisce on Sunday night and, and just uh, how awesome of a race it was. And we'll be sitting here saying Texas forever and not Texas whatever, because it turned out to be a totally horrible debacle like we saw in Belgium. But I'm going to say that now and jinx it and then move away from that. But we we have seen some bad weather there in the past, but it, it should be good. But I'm just hoping that we're not going to see any shenanigans. Let's put it that way. Not to spoil the preview, but it looks like there's a very, 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 very minor chance of maybe a little bit of precipitation during free practice one and two. But otherwise, it should be in the low to mid 80s American in 
Canada, that would be 30-ish. So it's going to be hot. It's going to be sunny. It was a little bit overcast tonight as one of our on-site listeners shared on the Spaces chat tonight, but it's going to be a scorching hot weekend and the weather certainly won't be an issue, but we can save that and package that up for the back end of the podcast when we do our Grand Prix preview. Also, I, I must just mention right off the top here that to any of one that's in the community here that is in Austin right now, I hate you guys so much, but I'm just, you know, lashing out because I'm at home and I'm jealous as hell. So, you know, I didn't really mean that, but uh, well, I am jealous, but <laughs> hopefully next year we'll be at a much different place. I mean, now that things are starting to come back online and what looked like a, a questionable, uh, you know, opportunity to actually go down and watch the race in 2021 will be a no brainer and uh, easily accessible in 2022. Anyways, like you say, we don't want to give away too much in the preview. We're going to get to that uh, a little bit later on in the show, but there's plenty of really, really interesting things going around uh, this week in terms of uh, Formula One news. And the first one was the Formula One and Motorsport Network unveiling the largest single sports survey ever conducted uh, by uh, Nielsen Sports. Now, this is really, really interesting. So this is findings from the Motorsport Network work F1 global fan survey and um, you know the general takeaway from this is that that fans are generally very you know very enthusiastic not just enthusiastic but very enthusiastic in the direction that the sport is uh, taking which you know it's kind of interesting because it seems like no matter what sport it is that uh, if the fans are pulled there, there seems to be some a fairly vocal you know, proportion portion of the fan base that seemed to be critical about something, but not so in this case. Uh, apparently, ninety percent of the fans survey believe that Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport, which is kind of a you know their their tagline. So in twenty seventeen, twenty five percent of the fans said the sport is in better health than it was five years ago, and that number is now risen to fifty five percent, and that is even higher in the uh, demographic that is age thirty five or under who say 15 or 59 percent of them said that the sport is better now than it was five years ago which is amazing uh considering that uh, obviously since 2017 we had a change in ownership bernie ecclestone gone liberty in but in between we've also had a pandemic which we're not totally clear of and uh, of course the economic fallout of uh you know the, the whole pandemic is still going to be felt for some time so this is i thought that was an interesting you know one of the interesting takeaways from this poll I've always been fascinated about the fact that Formula One even stages a fan survey like this. Maybe not so much that they that they ask and solicit feedback for a survey, but rather they present the feedback to the public. And this is something that obviously Formula One was doing before Liberty, and it's a tradition that Liberty's carried on. The, the thing I think we have to be very cautious of here is that this is as much a marketing play for Liberty and Formula One as sure. it is a mechanism to really solicit feedback from their consumers, for those that watch and, and purchase merchandise and, and participate in the ecosystem that is the Formula One community. So I think we have to be a little bit cautious. And even when I was navigating the survey, I kept thinking, look, the way some of these questions are phrased and positioned, it's very hard hard sometimes to give a critical answer. And it's very easy to see in some cases that they were trying to shape a narrative from the survey. If we position a question this way, and these are the responses that the customer or the individual, the consumer is allowed to respond to, you can see they're trying to shape a narrative. That said, 
it's interesting to look at. I think some of the surprises for me were one that Max Verstappen is or has been proclaimed as the single most popular driver, especially amongst perhaps the most important demo, which is the 25 to 34s. I kind of kind of thought that was going to go in a different direction, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised given the fact that so many of the people that participated in this survey are new to the sport in the last two or three years, and he's absolutely got a fervent, uh, dedicated fan base. Number two is Lando, which didn't surprise me at all, and coming in third is seven times world champion Lewis Hamilton. The one thing that didn't necessarily surprise me, and I think this is really driven by its resurgence in the UK and in the United States, is the fact that McLaren registered as the most popular team in Formula One, followed by Red Bull, Ferrari, and then the ultra-dominant Mercedes team. When you saw some of these results, were you surprised? Is it maybe what you would have jotted down if you had to take an educated guess? Uh, well, no. I mean, I'm not surprised at the the, the top four most uh, popular teams, but I am surprised the way that they kind of ranked out, you know, with McLaren on top, totally, Red Bull, totally. Ferrari, and Mercedes. I mean, Red Bull, especially this year, have kind of uh, come up with a, they've become, a, I think we talked about it, the villains of Formula One. And and we've, we've heard this uh, from quite a few of the listeners in, in recent weeks and months that, you know, love Max, love Checo, but don't really like, uh, you know, Horner, don't really like Marco, don't really like the team. So that's kind of interesting. But, you know, what really kind of shocks me is that I thought that Ferrari would have been no brainer, like the the de facto number one without even without, you know, without even having to do a formal poll. So the fact that they ranked third and Mercedes fourth was uh, actually very, very surprising. But when it comes in terms of uh, popular drivers, I'm not surprised to see any of those names in there. But I, again, I'm very surprised the way that uh, that they kind of ranked out. I mean, Ricardo, sure, you know, um, coming in at number four. I have to admit that um, Verstappen as number one is a bit of a surpriser because, I mean, surprise, I mean, compared to Lando, compared to Lewis, compared to, to, to Ricardo, I mean, Max on the personality and like the um, the the warm fluffy scale does not rank as high as uh, some of these other guys. I mean the, the the other three are are very personable. Max, you know, he's got a bit of a coldness uh, to him, just the way that his uh, his personality is. I mean, I'm not suggesting that he's not a nice guy, but I mean, at least in front of the cameras or on uh, you know in, uh, on on audio, I mean, these other guys come across you know they're, they're much more much more depth to their character, I guess you could say. That's a really great observation because the other consideration there that makes Max a surprise for me, and, and I get it, he's a superstar on the track. He hasn't won a world championship. He may win a world championship this year, but he doesn't do some of the things that we assume a celebrity or a superstar athlete would do today, which is be one ultra media savvy, mm -hmm. know how to play the media, know how to participate in podcasts and how to come across in interviews. His social media presence as well is almost negligible, especially when you stack and, it and against- And it's very corporate, very exactly. scripted, right? Well, you and I have talked about that before, and we've, we've suggested that it's probably very- very likely that it's Red Bull themselves that are managing his social media accounts yep. because I just I can't see him pulling out his phone and posting something on Instagram. To me, that seems very manufactured. So it's it's interesting that despite the fact that to your point, his his attitude can come across as a little bit cold and maybe a, a little bit grating or abrasive, and the fact that he has zero social media presence, just his 
his presence on the track and what he does come every Sunday is enough to propel him to the front. Now, the one thing that I was very curious about is I wanted to understand the mix of respondents by region or even by country, and mm-hmm. they didn't break that out. So you can see by Europe, you can see it by the Americas, and you can see it by the, the or Pacific Rim. Um, you can see as well that the Americas, the, the percentage of the participants coming from the Americas, so that'd be South and Central in North America is greater than it's ever been. But likewise, we also saw a surge in participation out of the Asia Pacific region. So we saw basically flat participation out of Europe, but we saw massive gains in Asia and slight gains in the Americas, which I thought was interesting. But what I really would have liked to have seen is see it at an even more granular level. Like I'd really like to have seen like how many participants uh, were from Canada, how many participants were from the Netherlands. And I would love to have seen a comp. So I would love to have seen like what percentage of respondents in 2017 came from this country and what percentage of respondents came from this country in 2021. Because I would love to have seen the growth and engagement in the United States Mm -hmm. and in the Netherlands and in some of these other countries where we're seeing this real boom of popularity in the sport of Formula One. Well, I mean, one of them, it says uh, new younger audiences show growth, US 50%, India 55%, China 58%, Mexico, excuse me, 45%. And then uh, these, um, uh, excuse me, these audiences uh, also indicated they've been following Formula One for less than five years, which would very much uh, mirror what we've seen on a more micro scale here in terms of right. uh, the, the growth and the the expansion of our own community and, uh, and, and our listeners. But again, uh, th- you know, it, I, I find the numbers interesting, but sometimes I find they lack a little bit uh, kind of um, a little bit more depth and context to to really give a little bit more meaning to them. But I think it is interesting. There was a couple other takeaways in here that I found uh, very interesting. Uh, said uh, fifth only this is um, maybe a little bit surprising, but only 55 percent of the fans uh, uh, polled believe that Formula One should be a lead, a world leader, that is, in the development of 100 percent sustainable fuels. 67% of those same fans said they were aware of Formula One's plan to introduce uh, 100% sustainable fuels by 2025. And 58% of the fans polled said that Formula One has struck the right balance of sport and entertainment. Now, that's up actually quite significantly. That's up 19% from 2017 when uh, the the poll said that only 39% that they'd struck that balance of sports and uh, entertainment. So, you know, uh, there there's certainly a, a ways to go and we will find out uh, exactly whether or not the the new formula, that the new cars that will debut next year is a step in the right uh, direction, but I would say that is a a fairly big increase and I would say that um, the, the races do tend to be uh you know, in general quite entertaining, some more than others, but uh, again, I think that this is a fairly subjective uh, question. You know, when, when you ask somebody, do you find Formula One entertaining? And it's either yes or no. You know, there, there, there's a lot of latitude and a lot of ways you could explain it. And then I guess the, the final takeaway, and this is not really a surprise at all. Apparently, Twitter is the social media platform that is used the most during uh, race weekends. And Instagram is the fi- fastest growing. But I mean, th- that is to me a bit of a, a no brainer. I mean, Twitter, I mean, you can interact with other people. I mean, you can post your thoughts. I mean, 
uh, Instagram isn't really meant for that in in the same sort of way, uh, you know. But it's interesting how Facebook isn't even in the the conversation now. But I guess that is sort of an indication of sort of the broader and bigger discussion of the relevancy of uh, Facebook in 2021. And you know, if to, to you know, if you listen to the stories out there that they're going to rebrand and maybe actually move away from Facebook. So who knows? Maybe they're going to resurrect MySpace. So. Or maybe my, my Facebook account will go the way of my MySpace account did all those years into the uh, <laughs> into the, the ether somewhere. I was very curious about that Facebook piece as well. And I dug deep because they actually did post a document. So there's a big <clears throat> PDF. It's like a million pages. You can go and you can dig in um, to some fairly granular levels regarding the feedback from the questions. But mm-hmm. they did note within the document that usage of Facebook to procure news and information about Formula One had collapsed by like 40%. So fewer people than ever are using Facebook to procure information about Formula One. Again, and I got to reiterate this point as well, that if you go to chart 7.1 and you look at Formula One media consumption habits from 2005 to 2021, they still don't register YouTube vlogging and podcasts as a form of media consumption, which is appalling given how much content Liberty themselves put out on those platforms. And Mm -hmm. we, we had conversations about this and we talked about it in some of our spaces chats where a lot of folks consume only Formula One podcast, that they don't have time for social media. They're not reading stories. They're not reading magazines. They're not watching YouTube clips. They'll watch the Grand Prix. They'll watch qualifying. And in between, their core source of news for Formula One is podcasting. And I thought it was just a pretty catastrophic miss for motorsport and F1 to exclude this increasingly dominant form of media, especially in in the sporting world where podcasts have gained so much traction since 2005. Yeah, totally. Very, very interesting. Anyways, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to move on into the news. And well, it's it's a little bit of a branch off uh, from this. It's uh, to do with uh, Max Verstappen and his refusal to join in Drive to Survive. So maybe his popularity is going to take a bit of a hit with the uh, Gen DTS. Anyways, we'll talk about that and much more in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And before we dive into it any further, a big shout out to Michelle Gonzalez. Michelle G 
friend of the show, faithful listener in Austin. She's checking yes. in on the live chat. And uh, again, I, I'm so jealous. So jealous. I can't be there myself. 30 hours on Amtrak to get there from Chicago via St. Louis. So I, I watched her documenting her trip. She seems to be a big fan of the US train system, but kudos to That's joining awesome. after a 30 hour commute. Looks like the weather's going to be fantastic tomorrow. Have a blast and post lots of pictures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and big respect for making the trip via train. That, that would be one heck of a journey love to do it all right well going back to what i was uh, teasing about just before the break and max for some, this is not really news but because this he hasn't participated at all but uh, max said he uh, refuses to participate in what he calls the fake drive to survive netflix uh, series uh he said uh, quote uh, they faked a few rivalries which didn't really exist so i decided not to be a part of it and did get any more interviews after that because there's nothing you can show I'm not really a dramatic show kind of person. I just want the facts and real things to happen, end quote. So there you go. I mean, a little bit uh, disappointing, but I mean, you know, when, when you have one of your main, you know, your, your top drivers not participating, but considering how good season three was and all the storylines and all the different threads that they pulled on, you know, I, I don't think this, the show misses or lacks anything without uh, Max in it. The the only thing that they might do is like they did in season one when neither Ferrari or, or McLaren, sorry, uh, Mercedes uh, participated. They would kind of splice in some stock footage from press conferences and things like that from some of the different drivers and like Lewis and Sebastian and, and, and whatnot. So, I mean, that didn't really you know, fit well with the overall feel, if you want to call it that, of the, uh, the that that season. But it, it added a little bit and it was a little bit kind of like awkward at times. But, you know, it again, even without them participating and obviously eventually they saw the, the, the value in doing it, it didn't really lack it. So I, you know, sadly, I have to say, I think this is kind of Max's loss if uh, more than anything else. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same. I had a couple of people reach out to me and ask why Formula One and why Red Bull doesn't just force them to do this. But the reality is Formula One's very different than professional North American sports, where when the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, or the NHL, they're working on a collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association. Within that collective bargaining agreement are commitments from the players that they're going to participate in certain types of media availability. And of course, in Formula One, there is no union and thus no collective bargaining agreement. So mm -hmm. when the drivers participate, it's typically because the teams are able to convince them to do so in their contracts. And there's some expectations. And I think drivers are typically complimentary enough that they're going to do it. But certainly as a new construct, Drive to Survive, there is no obligation from any driver to participate. In fact, as we saw in 2019, there's no obligation from the teams to participate because we didn't see Ferrari or Mercedes. And to kind of line up with your point earlier, that was a big miss for them. That was a bigger loss for them than it was for the show and the sport, because I think it was a great opportunity to showcase some of the other teams. And you have to wonder whether a lot of the support that Red Bull has gained over the last couple of years is because they gained so much exposure in 2019 from Drive to totally. Survive. And Christian Horner had such a platform. The other consideration too is like, I would love to see Max. I, I think he should be there. He should be doing it. I think he feels a little bit burned because of the way that the show framed him in 2019. It, it set him up to be a bit of a, a bit of a villain. And I think that probably left a bit of a sour taste in his mouth. Um, I would love to hear him. I'd love to see him on the show. I, I love to hear his candid opinions, even if I don't agree with them. I think it's a nice stark contrast to mm -hmm. some of the clearly handled and PR manipulated commentary that we hear from some of the drivers though I think I think generally we get a pretty a pretty unedited uh, unsampled version of the drivers which is nice but I would love to hear him up there as well 
it's a shame for him. It's a shame for the sport. And I think from Red Bull's perspective, I'm sure Christian sat down with him, said, hey, do you want to do this thing? He's like, nope, got burned in 2019. I want to focus on a championship. And Horner's like, great. And I think that was probably the end of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. It's too bad, but uh, whatever. Anyways, uh, just uh, another uh, comment from the the YouTube live stream, Craig Day saying, Max is immature slash selfish. His inability to understand the importance of DTS is another case in point. So... That uh, pointed comment, but I think there's uh, definitely something to that. And then also Daniel Ecclesiastra said, flew into Austin today and boy, are my arms tired. You know, I added that second part. Anyways, uh, Daniel says, can't wait for all the fun this weekend. And uh, absolutely, again, somebody I'm extremely jealous of. But uh, I don't I, I don't disagree, by the way, about that comment. Like to me, I don't think it necessarily means it's a lack of maturity or it might be as might be a lack of self-awareness. Mm. But I do agree that in the spirit of professionalism and helping to grow the sport of which he's benefited greatly, he should be doing this type of media availability. I totally agree with that. Yeah. You know, I've mentioned it before on the time, but uh, with years interviewing, uh, you know, high level athletes and uh, and coaches and uh, front office and executives and things like that. Some of them get it. Some of them realize the importance of having a good, you know, genuine presence in the media. Some people do it, but they're not the greatest at it. It's just, you know, just their own you know, characteristics. And some people do it, but they do it begrudgingly. And some people just don't want to do it at all. So it, it really is a personal kind of thing. But I, I really find it kind of interesting in that very small fishbowl that is uh, Formula One that, uh, that that everybody seems to, to want to get involved with it, except uh, for, for Max. And maybe it's... that, except for maybe the Haas drivers. But well, I, I guess they, they did feature rather hev- heavily uh, 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 Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen in the first couple of years. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, they you know serve up in the, the the next season with Mazepin and Mick Schumacher. It's like somebody said to us the other day, sometimes you've got to be careful what you wish for because mm. sometimes when you get access to these folks, yep. you don't get what you might be expecting. And like you, I've been in more than a few major league soccer press conferences after a match and the the manager of that rival team comes in, sits down, says, I don't want to be here. You got any questions? And before anyone can even raise their hand, they're storming out. So in some cases, it's almost better that you don't have that that access, if you know what I mean. That said, I still think Max should be doing this. He benefits greatly from the sport. The sport benefits greatly by his presence. I, I just, I'm still, by the way, struggling to wrap my head around this. And maybe this is just the modern world where we mm. have these preconceived notions that to be popular, you have to be, you have to be friendly and outgoing and accessible and polite, and you have to engage in social media. Maybe this is just another one of those examples that, hey, maybe those things help. But maybe they're not paramount. And maybe having that brisker, more stern, slightly abrasive personality and just being very competitive and aggressive on the track is enough to propel you forwards. But I don't know. Well, you know, the old saying, everybody loves a winner, right? And um, I, I think that, uh, but but again, like some some athletes tend to, tend to transcend the sport. I mean, how many people do you know that are Lakers fans or Cavaliers fans or Miami Heat fans and who, who are just like fans of LeBron, for, for yeah, example? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Right? And, and then the same thing, who, who are like uh, Patriots fans and Bucks fans and who are fans of uh, Tom Brady? I, I think it's more, that's more of a, a phenomenon that's maybe a little bit more unique to... Uh, um, to LeBron, say then, then, then Tom Brady, but you know, 
as a guy that's a football fan, I can tell you that you know I've I've watched the Patriots for years because I mean they've been such an amazing team, and I'm not necessarily a fan of the New England uh, Patriots, but definitely I've had more eyes on T-Bay over the past uh, year and a half since Tom Brady went there because you know it's Tom Brady, the guy's like seven time, he's won what seven Super Bowls and a million MVP awards. You know some some personalities are just bigger than the sport, and I I think especially in Formula One it tends to be more pronounced just because it is smaller. There's fewer people doing it and the, the names the, the drivers that tend to be the ones that really percolate to the top really get that um that letter that label of legend thrown on them maybe a lot quicker than say in other sports you've touched on one of my favorite subjects which is transcendency in professional sports and i've argued for many years that lewis hamilton is the closest thing to a globally transcendent athlete that formula one has had in its modern history Mm -hmm. and his presence has been incredibly important for the sport it's never dawned on me that Maybe Max, and I think largely as a byproduct of Drive to Survive over the last three seasons, has himself become transcendent in the sense that Mm -hmm. he's now bigger than the sport and there's an awareness of he and his personality that blurs the line between an F1 fan, a casual F1 fan, and somebody that is vaguely familiar with F1 that maybe... Maybe he's reaching that level of transcendency, and maybe he has to, to have been propelled to the front of the pack in terms of most popular drivers in Formula One. Hey, just before we move on from this, uh, this is another uh, comment from Craig in the live stream, and this this is interesting. I just want to get your, your thoughts on this, and uh, he has to say, F1 and all of professional sport is entertainment, and the drivers are the stars. Max is a bit of a villain sometimes, and that's okay. Smiley face. If he only owned it, I would respect him so much more. What do you think about that? I think that's a I think that's a pretty profound comment, especially that last bit. I'll be totally honest. I've always relished the opportunity to be in a position where I could lean into being the villain. You want to cast <laughs> me as the villain? I would love to lean into it. And I'll be totally honest. Some of my favorite television shows, some of my favorite movies are about the villain. They're about the bad guy. And I can really root for them. And I've been watching Trailer Park Boys now for three seasons. And it's effectively <laughs> about three villains. I, I love all those type of movies. I loved Lord of War. I, I love to see that. So if I had the opportunity to be cast as a villain while still being on the right side of the law, I would lean into that and I would embrace that. And it's funny because it ties very effectively into our next story of villainy and criminality. You know, th- that was the perfect segue and I was actually going <laughs> to lean into it in the exact same way that you did, but this is this is brilliant. Well, the, the story itself is not uh, brilliant. Anyways, Flavio Briatore is uh, threatening uh, a return to Formula One, which is kind of interesting because I thought he was banned from Formula One after the whole Crashgate thing, but he was um, he posted a video on his Instagram account with uh, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali, and together they announced a bright future for Formula one you know that that sounds a little bit uh, cryptic and uh you know they, they've uh, they've revealed some kind of partnership so we'll see what that uh actually is i don't know what to, to make of this and honestly i thought that uh you know briatori and the era of uh, briatori was better left in the past but hey maybe that's just me 
It should absolutely be left in the past. There are 7 billion people in this world. <laughs> Tell me there isn't somebody equally as capable of doing whatever it is that Domenicali and Formula One think that he might be valuable doing. So for starters, I think there's there's a distinct possibility that th- this is a non-story, that maybe he's going to be attending the Grand Prix. Maybe he's going to be greeting some VIPs and taking them around. Maybe Domenicali and Liberty have lost their mind and they honestly believe bringing this convicted criminal into the world of Formula One in 2021 is a good thing. He has no business being in Formula One. I get it. He ran a couple Formula One teams. He owned a couple of Formula One teams. He won a couple of championships. He was also involved in one of the sport's ugliest scandals. He was banned for life until the until the uh, conviction by the FIA was overthrown by the French courts. This is a guy that was convicted of fraud multiple times in the 80s. He was sentenced to jail. He fled the country. <laughs> this is a guy that that took on the responsibility of growing the Benetton brand in the 80s in the United States. He expanded by 800 stores, flooding the marketplace, knowingly flooding the marketplace with stores that were simply going to cannibalize each other because he earned a commission off of every one of those stores, only to see 75% of them collapse in debt almost immediately. This guy is a mess. And if you're not familiar with the Renault Formula One crash controversy, I'll just recap this very quickly. And I quote from Wikipedia on the 20th of September, 2008, on the 14th lap of the Singapore race, the Renault R28 driven by Nelson PK Jr. crashed into the circuit wall at turn 17, necessitating a safety car deployment. The other Renault driver, Fernando Alonso, had previously made an early pit stop and was promoted to the race lead as other cars pitted under safety car conditions. Alonso subsequently won the race after starting 15th on the grid. PK described this crash at the time as a simple mistake. But as we discovered later, it was orchestrated. He was ordered to intentionally crash his car, which in my mind should have resulted in a criminal conviction because you put the life and well-being of one of your drivers at risk. The fact that there's any conversation about bringing this gentleman back into Formula One is shocking and appalling, and he has no place in the sport and absolutely no sport, no, no place in the front office of the organization Liberty, the commercial rights holding group, no business being here. I don't know if you're as passionate about this as I am, but I think based on your WhatsApp messages earlier, you probably are. <laughs> well, considering that this show is rated E for everyone and uh, doesn't have like the explicit <laughs> lyrics tag uh, slapped on it, then uh, perhaps our WhatsApp chat is probably better confined to, to WhatsApp. But you know, I, I totally agree with uh, what you were just saying there, Mark. I don't really have uh, too much more to, to, to add to that other than the fact that uh, perhaps if you're a certain shady businessman that's been trying to get his hands on a Formula One team unsuccessfully over the past couple of years. This is good news because if they're going to welcome back in a convicted criminal and, uh, you know, dodgy character like, uh, you know, the fellow you were just talking about, then it's just like, well, maybe people won't be so negative if I get my hands on my own team at some point. Uh, and I guess I've kind of leaned into that one as much as I dare to without, uh, you, know, you know, naming names and getting myself into trouble. Anyways, we can talk about other businessmen. Uh, well, Legit uh, businessman on the other side of the break here. Lawrence Stroll said Andretti would be a great addition to Formula One if the stories are true. We'll talk about that and much more in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, so we were talking on Monday, on Monday's show, about the possibility that Andretti Autosport is looking to somehow take a stake or perhaps a purchase a Sauber, uh, you know, to or to, well, I guess the, the, the latest story out there is that they are looking to buy an 80% stake in the team that is currently known as Alfa Romeo, was car- formerly known as Alfa or Sauber Alfa Romeo, and before that, just Sauber. So apparently, over the past uh, couple of days, it's been uh, revealed that, uh, that that things haven't been progressing maybe as smoothly as they'd uh, hoped. But anyways, uh, Lauren Stroll, owner of uh, the Aston Martin team, he had to say, quote, Andretti's a great name. I know the family and I think they'd be a great addition to the sport if it's true. I don't know much about it other than I heard it in the paddock at the last race that there was potentially some activity there. I think they did an SPAC in the States and they were going to look at uh, to buy some uh, something in motorsports. I fully get it. I see the logic end quote. So there you go. I mean, absolutely. I think uh, as we talked about uh, earlier this week, um, getting the Andrettis and everything that uh, you know that, that they bring and the history that uh, that that family has and their success in motorsport in general would be uh, you know a wonderful thing uh, to see in in Formula One. But yeah, it it, it is interesting. Uh, you know that you know number one that it's happening supposedly uh you know number two it's maybe not so much of a surprise that it hasn't been maybe progressing as quickly as they hoped it would but also i think it's interesting that uh you know somebody like lauren stroll is eager to see them come into the sport and excuse me it would be good especially considering that they are legit they have a connection with uh, motorsports you know running teams as drivers the whole nine yards they know how to race they know what it's about and i think that would just be beneficial Absolutely. I believe they have the expertise, the personnel, the infrastructure. I think they would be committed. And I think they have a fantastic runway in the United States to build fandom and and to build a a support base around the times, right? I think it's really just going to come down to what, uh, what the Longbow group is willing to accept in terms of an offer. And like you and I said, and if you didn't hear our last podcast, I'm all for Andretti Autosports getting involved with Formula One. I Mm -hmm. think we need Groups that are committed to Formula One. I think Gene Haas is currently a stain on Formula One, and I think that's a bad ownership group that needs to be replaced. But I think Andretti Autosport could be the anti-Gene Haas in that they come into the sport wanting to grow it in the U.S., to build an academy with U.S.-based drivers, to get a U.S. driver into the cockpit of one of these cars, if you can call it that. I think they have all the right intentions. If the deal makes sense for Formula One, what I don't obviously want to see is Sauber accept a low ball offer because I want to see the valuation of Formula One teams grow. The couple of other notes that I did hear this week that I thought were very interesting. One, and we've posted this before, is that Sauber Alfa Romeo have not announced their second driver because the Andretti Autosport Group clearly wants to make that decision, which is makes total sense that if I'm buying yep. a team, I want to have control over who's going to be driving my teams. Totally. And I don't want to take on a driver that I'm not invested in. The other consideration too is it's been reported that there is tremendous anxiety at the team's existing factory because Andretti Autosport has designs on eliminating up to 200 headcount, presumably mm. because they want to move a lot of the production into the United States and into a more concentrated base in the UK. So it's understood that 
talks are advanced and there's already an understanding of how the team will be structured. And curiously, Valtteri Bottas has been quoted as saying that during his contract negotiations, he was not aware of an outsider, a US-based hmm. bid to buy the team. So he signed up expecting to be racing for Alfa Romeo Sauber next year. And he may be racing for a team that's called Alfa Romeo Sauber, but could be managed and headed in a very different direction. But good news to Andretti Autosport because having a reliable hand, a steady hand like Valtteri Bottas there when you take ownership is oh, not totally. necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the, the one thing that we do know is that, uh, th- that if this is going to happen, there probably will be no official announcement at Austin uh, this weekend. But I guess uh, the, the best way to kind of keep up in touch is obviously listening to us, but um, the, the other way is uh, you can actually give uh, at follow Andretti a follow uh, that's kind of brought to you by the Department of Redundancy Department. Anyways, follow at follow Andretti on Twitter to keep up uh, with all the latest news there. Um, keeping with that, uh, yeah, that, so yeah, that just uh, another link that I have here. Yeah, they're not uh, expecting to get this uh, deal done uh, this weekend. I'll just add quickly yeah, as go well. Ahead. Um, just while we're on the topic of Lawrence Stroll, and and I don't want to interject, but I thought this was really interesting. He did a podcast last week with Beyond the Grid that I highly encourage everybody to listen to. And it played a little bit different than I expected based on his uh based on his participation with Drive to Survive last year. He comes across obviously as eloquent and articulate. He's very, very accessible, but he talks a little bit about his history with Formula One, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't. Mm -hmm. But I thought, and one of the big takeaways I have, which I thought was really interesting, was he was asked during this interview, look, how long or at what point, or did you always want to own a Formula One team? He's like, look, no. Never. He's like, I had no designs on owning a Formula One team until almost the moment it happened. And he's, hmm. his point was, look, I saw that there was a potential for Formula One teams to have valuations similar to the NBA and the NFL, two, three, four billion dollars a piece. But he said what was preventing that from happening was the lack of cost certainty and competitive balance. And he said, one, when I saw that there was going to be a cost cap, it intrigued my interest. But he's like, the other piece was that he didn't have the appetite to buy a completely broken Formula One business and have to tear it down and yeah. rebuild it. And the reason that he was so interested in Force India when it went into administration was he's like, look, that team has an extremely solid foundation. If I take that foundation of 400 great people and I add another 350 great people and I build them a really great factory and give them the first wind tunnel the sports had since 2003, new wind tunnel the sports had since 2003 or 2004, then we've got something. And then it all kind of snowballed from there. But I thought it was really interesting that he didn't come into Formula One with with Lance with the expectation that he was going to buy a team. He was obviously very soured about that Williams experience, but he began mm-hmm. to see the possibilities. But it also reinforces that comment I made a couple of minutes ago, which is Lawrence Stroll got into the sport with the understanding that an F1 team should be worth not 200, not 300, not 400 million dollars, billions of dollars. And I think that's where Liberty's taking the sport. You know, and maybe that's where the sticking point is with Sauber and uh, Andretti. Exactly. It's like, it's what we were talking about the other night, just to recap in, in, in brief, is that what, what were we saying? That it was maybe valued at something like $200 million or something like that? And we're just like, well, you know, if you're the other nine teams, you might be a little bit, uh, you know, ticked off, especially exactly. if you're one of the marquee teams like Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes. 
that you've got one of the smaller teams basically cutting, undercutting everybody else and really lowballing. Uh, yeah, so that that could be a part of it. But, you know, a- again, and this is something we've mentioned many times uh, over the course of this uh, show is that, uh, and, and again, this it just bears repeating, is that people like Lawrence Stroll don't, don't get rich and ridiculously wealthy just by accident. They don't become successful in business just by accident. They do everything on purpose. You know, they, they look at the big picture and they look at all the fine details. So, I mean, the fact that uh, that he's decided to sink all of this money, his own money into Aston Martin and into Formula One and also into the Aston Martin road car division, you know, really, really says a lot. And especially, I mean, I could see more of like uh, investing in the road car division, but I mean, historically, I mean, buying a, a, a sports franchise of any kind is almost a guarantee to to, to buy or invest your money into a losing proposition because many of them don't make very, very much money at all. And I, I just can't believe that it's in the DNA of a person like uh, Lawrence Stroll that he would want to fetter away his hard-earned you know, capital on a, on a losing venture uh, like a, a, a pro sports franchise. So he's obviously sees a lot of upsides in that. Like you say, the way that uh, Liberty's taking the direction of Formula One and the fact that these, uh, these teams might be worth a billion, two, three, four, whatever it is in at some time in the future. So that these obviously seen a lot. And I mean, it's not all about the money. There's there, there's obviously more things to it than that. But obviously, when you invest, uh, you know, half a billion dollars into a Formula One team and, you know, you recoup, uh, you sell it off at some point in the future, maybe for four billion, you know, that's a nice, tidy little payday, which people like you and I will never have to worry about the tax implications and capital gains and all that. Anyways, moving along, this is kind of interesting, and it's also a bit of a, a sad story, but uh, Jack Ploy, who's a, a Dutch uh, Formula One journalist, uh, believes that if uh, Nikki uh, Lauda was uh, still alive, that uh, the clashes that we've seen more recently uh, between Total Rolf and uh, Christian Horner, that uh, you know, since Nikki's passing in 2020, may not have uh, occurred because he really feels that uh, he was kind of that that buffer between both Toto and, and Christian in, in years uh, gone past. Anyways, uh, Jack Jack had to say, uh, quote, I think Nikki Loud has missed it, uh, Mercedes. Nikki had lunch with uh, Helmut Marco every day. I think a lot of fires were put out there. Maybe we never saw those arise, but we do now. I think Nikki would have given Helmut the order, keep Horner in his box for a while, then I'll do it with Toto, end quote. So a yeah, great, uh, great point. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm, what am I thinking? You know, I'm in this time vacuum again. It, it's been, you know, uh, Nikki passed away in 2019. My goodness, it's it's been a lot longer than that. But uh, yeah, really sad. But I, I think there's uh, definitely uh, there, there's something to that story. Definitely. It's one of those stories that reminds <clears throat> me of global politics in the sense that you might have these two, not necessarily warring states, but states that have tensions that are running high and trade wars and sanctions and, and you're calling on the troops. But you often have these these folks that are working the back channels. They're calming each other down. There's these, these red phones in offices at the highest level. And I think that's very much what what Nikki was delivering with Marco during all those years. But again, the difference is during poor Nikki's time, there was never a moment where Red Bull and Mercedes themselves were going head to head. So it would have been very yeah. careful. We're very curious. Now that said, I have full confidence that would never have escalated to what we've seen over the course of the last two or three or four months with some of the, the vitriol and some of the comments that have poured out of both camps that were totally unnecessary. But uh, yeah, it is sad. And it's funny because you made that comment and now I'm reflecting back on his career and the fact that it's already been over two years. And 
If you haven't seen it before, please go out, Rent Rush. I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's worth every second. Watch yeah. it, watch it, watch it, Rush. It's, it's a great movie and it uh, tells a, a great story. But yeah, you know, uh, it, it hasn't quite gone thermonuclear between uh, Red Bull and Mercedes. I mean, we haven't seen Toto and Christian out there in the pit lane swinging handbags at each other, but it, it, it's it's gotten close. And certainly I think uh, having uh, you know a, a wise voice uh, and a presence like uh, Nikki Lauda, you know, rest in peace, uh, definitely uh, may have kept things in the box. But like you say, I mean, before Nikki's passing, I mean, that 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 gap between the two teams was much bigger and they weren't uh, championship rivals. It was very much Mercedes dominance with the uh, Red Bull and other teams occasionally sneaking a win uh, here or there. Now, moving on to the next story, former Formula One driver and uh, another German, uh, Timo Glock, says that uh, Sebastian Vettel, uh, you know, current Aston Martin driver and four-time world champion, his values, Seb's, not Timo's, uh, currently do not align with Formula One, but Timo believes that Seb has earned the right to voice his opinions on how that uh, Formula One can improve. And I mean, he's been quite vocal. I mean, uh, there, there's been quite a number of stories, you know, Sebastian standing up and, uh, and, and you know, weighing in on a number of uh, different topics. And uh, it was only uh, just, uh, I think, last week was the, the most recent time that uh, Sebastian was saying more or less to the, to the fact, and I'm just going to sort of part and paraphrase here to the fact that if uh, Formula One doesn't adapt and and move with the the, the change, the broader change and things like that, then um, uh, they they risk becoming uh, you know irrelevant in you know just not just as a, a racing series but just a, as as a sport in general. But I think so. I mean Sebastian. I mean he's been around for a long time. I mean he's not really a polarizing uh, figure, and I, and I think that you know people you know the the way that change happens is if people demand change. And, uh, and if uh, issues are brought to light uh, that people may or may not uh, be uh, aware of, then, you know, you can never uh, demand accountability or transparency or even demand change if that's what uh, needs to happen, right? It's fascinating how the narrative of somebody's career can change. I don't think Sebastian Vettel was ever at a place where he was universally disliked or despised, but he was never necessarily globally embraced or beloved. And this is a guy that won the world championship in 10, 11, 12 was obviously an extraordinarily close championship with Fernando Alonso when he wins the title in 13, spends one year with Red Bull under the new turbo hybrid regulations before going to Ferrari under great fanfare with the Mm -hmm. hope of restoring a championship to that team that hadn't seen one at that point in eight years. Obviously that doesn't happen number of different reasons. And I think you and I will probably do a podcast 10 years from now in the off season where we dissect was, was his Ferrari venture a failure? Whose fault was it if it was? So that's a conversation that you and I can litigate later. But I do <laughs> find it interesting that really over the last 18 to 24 months, there's been this universal outpouring of sympathy and love for Sebastian Vettel. And I think part of it plays out with the way that his his Ferrari tenure ended the sense that it was pretty clear he was going to be departing. He quickly went from the alpha driver to the beta driver. It was very clear that Charles Leclerc was going to be the dominant driver and that was the team's future. And then all of a sudden in parallel with this, and this is where I need you to correct me or keep me honest. All of a sudden he starts taking very vocal, open platformed social justice stands on certain issues and certain topics, all of which I support and all of which I embrace. But I don't remember that five or six or seven or eight years ago. I don't know if this is a new Sebastian Vettel or if it's a Sebastian Vettel that I didn't know existed. 
Or if it's a Sebastian Vettel that recognizes that, hey, my career is finite. I'm probably not going to be here for a lot longer. I want to do some good with my platform while I've got it. But really until, and again, all the power to him. I support him. I embrace this. I want to see it. I want to see people take great progressive stands when they've got a platform like this, if if it's for the betterment of society. But is this new or was this something that he's done all along? And maybe I just didn't see it or the media didn't cover it. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think maybe it might be a little bit uh, all of the above if you want to be completely uh, honest about it. And I think also he might have been inspired a little bit uh, by by Lewis and everything that he was doing with the Hamilton Commission and the way that he sort of stood up and was, uh, you know, pretty blunt and saying that he didn't feel that uh, Formula One was doing uh, what the the whole We Races One and the whole, you know, that that whole thing that they they started that seemed kind of had a real sort of lukewarm feel to it. And I I think that um, Sebastian saw what Lewis was doing uh, there and I think uh, that may have inspired him to to do uh, to do it himself. I mean, certainly before this year, maybe last year, I, I guess that uh, this would have been a, a bit of a surprise. I mean, I I'd never really saw it or expected uh, it f- from him, but. You know, good for him. Glad to see him standing up and uh, making his voice and his opinions uh, known. And uh, like you say, I mean, if it uh, if it's for the the betterment of society, then I've uh, certainly got uh, no issue uh, with it. Now, um, oh, actually, let's take a quick break here. Um, the next couple of stories might uh, take a little bit of uh, time to uh, to get into. So let's take a quick break here. We'll come back in just a moment. So don't go away. We still got plenty more to discuss before we even get to our U.S. Grand Prix preview. All right. Well, welcome back. So this is a, I guess, very topical and very contemporary for stop. 2020. Oh, stop. Stop. Hammer time. Stop. Before, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Before we get into these very, very meaty topics, sure. I just want to share with all of the listeners, everybody at home, that you and I had agreed, we had a handshake agreement that this was going to be a Friday Night Lights themed podcast. Oh, I know. That, that we was were so going bad. to choose characters. I was going to be Vince. You were going to be Riggins. We were going to quote Friday Night Lights constantly. And all of this would be to give shine, to flex, to help promote. Texas forever. I came in. I took the day off of work. Work doesn't know this, but I took the day off of work. (laughs) I rewatched 17 episodes. I was reading scripts. I was getting quotes ready to go. And I come in here and we didn't do the Friday Night Lights okay. special. So from here on out, the rest of the uh, the show, you're Coach Hamilton. I'll be QB1. Just don't call me Landry, okay? I, no. I wanna... <laughs> so Landry, so I have two least favorite play, or players. players. Two, two least favorite characters. Saranson, okay. Saranson, I cannot stand. Landry drives me crazy. My favorite character is Vince. So you can be QB1 okay. of Dylan. I will be QB of East Dylan of the Panthers. Okay, wasn't it the other way? Was it? Was it the oh, no, Dylan pa- Panthers? The Panthers were. That, yeah, that was that was Coach Taylor's team. <laughs> what was the other team? <laughs> well, wasn't it the Lions? No, I can't remember. But uh, I, I should know. I mean, uh, it's been a while since I watched it. But uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Clearly, I, I didn't actually do any prep for this show <laughs> at all. But I, I was. I want. Yeah, you're right. It was the East Dillon Lions. So it was the Panthers. And when they restarted the East Dillon School, which had been closed, and Tammy goes to take it over, it was the East Dillon Lions, led by Vince. 
Michael B. Jordan, who is my favorite character on the show. Yeah, he was so good. You know, I was just going to say, we were joking the other night when we were uh, talking about uh, the whole Friday Night uh, Lights uh, theme for the show tonight that uh, I said, uh, well, did I ever tell you that Tim Riggins is my spirit animal? You're like, okay, fine, you can have him. And, I and, was he, like, and he's from BC. He's from Kelowna, right? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, Taylor's from uh, Kelowna. But I was uh, I was kind of joking about that. Then I said, well, maybe Tim Riggins isn't actually the best sort of person to be a model yourself or use as a role model. So I, I, I won't uh, choose uh, Tim as my, my spirit animal. I'll, I'll move up a notch. I'll, I'll go with Buddy Garrity because, you know, the sleazy oh, middle-aged, uh, you know, like overkeen, uh, you know, uh, boosters is, is the guy that you really want to be. I feel like <laughs> Formula One's history is dotted with characters Gar- like yeah, him. Like Buddy dotted Garrity. with characters yeah, like doing yeah. like the sleazy commercial agreements and signing <laughs> contracts for events that are never going to happen. I feel like there's been a lot of Buddy Garrity's in yeah. Formula One. If Bernie Ecclestone came from Texas, he would have been uh, Buddy Garrity, 100%. Totally. Okay, <laughs> we'll go we'll back on track. I've derailed us enough. All right, coach. Anyways, so next one. Uh, so possibly unvaccinated F1 drivers may not get visas to go to the Australian Grand Prix next uh, spring. The Australian Grand Prix, as we all know, has been mostly off and then possibly on before it was off again. But now it's back on the calendar for April to... Sorry, April 10th, 8th to 10th, 2022, back in Melbourne, which would be the first time in uh, two years. Looked like it was going to happen this year before it was uh, scratched. But you know, Australia has obviously been pretty strict with the uh, and 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 pretty tight when it's come to the whole reaction uh, to to COVID. And uh, it's been different than a lot of other places. But you know they've got their own way of of, of doing things, and more power to them. But all, the only Formula One personnel who are fully vaccinated vaccinated will have easy entrance and get visas into Australia. And that's the same thing that uh, the tennis players have uh, been, uh, been been learning with the Australian Open and things like that. But uh, it's going to apply to Formula One as well. So, you know, it is interesting because, you know, uh, recently we were talking about uh, the medical driver, Alan uh, Vandermeer, who uh, is not going to be doing his duties in the medical car for the rest of the season because he had a second uh, positive COVID test. He previously had COVID. So, you know, he was going with the whole natural immunity thing. And so, you know, he doesn't want to get vaccinated. I mean, hey, this is not a pro or anti-vax rant or comment or anything, but I mean, you know, people are going to make their own decisions and based on, you know, where they're at for or against a vaccine and whatever the reasons may be. But as we're finding, that may cause you issues in other areas of life. So Formula One, not necessarily immune to that. You know, bad choice, you know, immune maybe is a bad choice of word to use, but you know what I'm saying. I think it's probably pretty hard, especially for those of us living in North America, to appreciate the amount and the severity of the lockdowns that the Australian public have endured over the course of the last 12, 18 months. Like we, I think a lot of us in North America, we reflect back on, you know, March, April 2020 were really tough. And then we've lived with variations of variations of restrictions ever since that time. And now, you know, most regions in North America are really <clears throat> starting to open up. But Melbourne in particular was on harsh harsh lockdown to the point where, hey, you could leave your house to go to the pharmacy, to buy groceries, or to exercise an hour a day. That level of restrictions and lack of freedoms. So I think for the Australian public, I think it's going to be really hard to say, look, you endured, you lived through these restrictions, you guys you guys embraced, you supported us, but now we're going to let these international celebrities in who themselves haven't been vaccinated. So it makes sense. And obviously Australia is a sovereign independent country and 
they are within their rights to impose restrictions like this. It's also just the right thing to do. And again, I don't want to take too big of a position, but to me, obviously, I think it's the right thing to do to require vaccination if you're going to be bringing people into the country. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. I'm pretty confident that the entire grid has been vaccinated. Obviously, F1 doesn't need to disclose that. But if we get to a point where they do travel to a country where vaccinations required, as it is in parts of the Middle East, we'll discover pretty quickly who is or maybe isn't. And again, yeah. this isn't to be a pro or against rant. It's just more the reality and the circumstances and that if drivers make decisions one way or the other, there could be consequences based on the rules and restrictions that these independent sovereign states put into place. Yeah. All right. Well, sticking with Australia, according to Seven Network, uh, which is a local TV news uh, uh, broadcaster in Sydney in New South Wales, apparently the state government there is assessing a bid to become the new host city of uh, Australia's Formula One race. Now, so the, 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 the real gem, the jewel of this bid is uh, a street style circuit that is very Monaco-esque, which just makes me kind of cringe because I'm not a big fan of uh, the Monaco circuit. Anyways, it would be a street circuit uh, that would be incorporated into Sydney's obviously world-famous uh, harbour and the, that uh, that whole environment there. So there are apparently, and I love the, what, what are called sensitive high-level talks. You know, that sounds like something that is, uh, you know, you, you're talking about like the red line there, you know, from the Kremlin to the White House, you know, this seems like, anyways, I, di I, I digress. Anyways, uh, but uh, anyways, the, the, the whole point of it is that they're considering uh, the, 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 the New South Wales government is uh, looking to, to back this as part of uh, a way to pump tens of millions of dollars into major events to really accelerate the COVID uh, recovery after we get, uh, you know, we, we finally start to put this rotten pandemic in the rearview mirror. So it is interesting because, uh, you know, there was uh, some talk not so long ago that uh, perhaps uh, Adelaide might want to try and get that race back. I mean, we were just even talking, uh, I think it was in the last week or so, there was a story about how a, a section of the historic uh, track is going to be uh, preserved there. So that just goes to to show you how race ready they are in Adelaide. But um, Sydney's a bit of a, uh, I must admit, a bit of a surprise. So it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. I think there are probably tens of thousands of heartbroken Formula One fans in Adelaide that might be chuckling a little bit after Melbourne swooped in and stole the Australian Grand Prix away from them after 10 years at the end of 1995. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think this is a good move. I think Formula One has a fantastic home in Melbourne, and I think that city and that state have invested heavily in upgrading and enhancing Albert Park. In fact, I strongly believe that a lot of the investments made into that track over the course of the last few months and years has really been driven to ensure that they secure the contract for the Australian Grand Prix going forward. But I think what could very well happen is you could see rival bids going for 2026 and beyond. So we know that contractually, Formula One is committed to Melbourne through the end of 2025, but the contract expires after 2025. So maybe no Australian city hosts it, or maybe Sydney and Melbourne go head to head. My hope, my hope is that that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I think Melbourne's a great host. I think it's a beautiful setting. I think the people in that city have taken to the sport. I just think it would be horrible to see two separate cities in a country like that battle and quarrel over this because I think it would potentially, at best, it could frustrate and upset fans in Sydney, or at worst, it could devastate all those folks that have been supporting Formula One in Melbourne for the last 26 years to feel the same way that those folks in Adelaide have felt. Now, I think we need to remember as well, 
Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, it's a very different country than many others around the world. The passion and the hunger for motorsports runs deep. That said, it's still only a country of 28 million people. And I don't think that commercially from a corporate sponsorship perspective, there's the room or the appetite for two races. And nor do I think it would serve Liberty's global ambitions. But I hope this doesn't happen. I hope Sydney backs down. And I hope uh, Melbourne is able to secure a long-term contract after 2025. Yeah, I mean, on a, on a completely different note, um, you know, I, I would like to really see what, what the uh, the new changes to Albert Park are really going to bring to the track and uh, how it will add to the, uh, the, the Grand Prix. But very much to, to echo your your sentiments there, Mark. I, I don't really see the benefits of uh, them, you know, even if they landed two races in uh, Australia, right? I mean, I, I can see them pulling that off with two to three races in the United States. I mean, it's big enough. There's enough, uh, you know, financial uh, power to get it done there. I think there's enough interest with, what, 330, 350 million people in the country. I mean, th- I, I think it, it would be able to be, uh, you know, supported because it's also geographically big enough. I mean, uh, you know, the USA is a big country. Uh, country and uh, Australia, like you say, a little bit smaller, and then of course Sydney and uh, and and Melbourne. You know, as the crow flies compared to some. Well, I mean, that's not even maybe a fair comparison because we do see races that in in other geographic regions that are still fairly close together. So maybe that's not the the best criteria to dismiss. You know, somebody from possibly hosting a race. Anyways, let's move on to the next one, and this one I, I think I maybe just. Uh, breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief here. And this is according to uh, F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali, who says Formula One is not even thinking about having sprint races at every Grand Prix, which to me is um, good news. In fact, the survey that Motorsport and Formula One had performed and has now released indicated that Fans believe sprint races, and I quote, have only marginally improved the F1 show and further do not have the appetite to see them introduced at every single race. I did think it was interesting that Domenicali, in response to the results from the survey, where fans were very, very clearly lukewarm or maybe even displeased with the concept he spun it in a way that oh no 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 we're listening to our fans we totally get it we're definitely not going to put them in every race we're only going to have them in 18 of the grand prix he's a man of the people he he didn't say 18 but it's funny how again they can spin that narrative that regardless of the outcome here formula one has every ambition to expand this concept and again I don't like the current concept. I don't like the fact that sprint qualifying sets the grid for the race as long as it can be what it is. To me, if it's a sprint race, call it a sprint race. Don't let it set the grid. Have qualifying on Friday. Allow the historical legacy importance of qualifying to persist. The person that qualifies on pole should be rewarded with pole. They should start on the grid at the Grand Prix. But to me, the perfect weekend is still qualifying on Friday. Have a sprint race on Saturday, make it more meaningful, distribute more more points, make it more meaty, put more meat on the bone for those Formula One teams, and then Sunday have your Grand Prix. I don't like the concept of sprint qualifying. I don't like the fact that qualifying is almost a wasted effort because there's no historical relevance. I don't like the current structure. I also didn't like Domenicali's spin on this, which is, no, 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 we hear the fans loud and clear. We're (laughs) definitely not doing this at every race. That was on the table. We were talking about having sprint qualifying at every single race. Interesting political perspective. 
I'm still open to the idea of having sprint races. I just think the formula needs to to be tweaked. And again, I, I also do appreciate and respect what Formula One's trying to do here. I think sometimes sports, the NFL and Major League Baseball have been guilty of this in the past, that they don't innovate, they don't move quickly enough, they struggle to attract younger fans. I think that could be a struggle. So I, I do like the fact that Formula One's willing to experiment with the menu, with the formula, try new things. I think they've tried this. I don't think it's resonated with fans. I don't think it's resonated with the media. So try something else. And next year, maybe try it as a sprint race. Call it what it is. Don't try to gloss it up. And don't detract from the value that is qualifying. You know, I was going to say, uh, what, while you were talking there, Mark, uh, that, that when it was my turn to, to weigh in on, on this story, that I was going to say, take the 10 most creative or smartest people in Formula One, take them to the boardroom, let them order pizza or ribs or Chinese food, whatever it is, lock them in the boardroom for a weekend and say, guys, you're not coming out until you get this thing sorted out. Clearly, you've got it all figured. So I think you just uh, save Formula One like $75 ordering from, from Pizza Hut. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But yeah, no, I mean, certainly, I mean, as uh, as we've kind of the, tried to grapple with this Rubik's Cube of getting the the combination of sprint qualifying correct, there, are, there there's still a lot of work that, that, that needs to be done. And I have to admit that even though I was really, really quite excited about when when I heard these comments by Domenicali, I was, uh, I was almost horrified. I was like, no, this, this can't be something that they want to do every weekend because... Yeah, it just seems too much. I mean, if they if they found like some super awesome, exciting qualifying or sprint qualifying format, I'd be all for it. But then very much, I think, is the, the, the drum that we've been beating all along is, you know, on the theme of majors, have it at certain events every year and just uh, keep it at that for a certain number of, uh, you know, certain times of, uh, of the year. And uh, that, that should be the way it is. How that actual format works, that's a, a different uh, story. But I think that you have to cap it five races, six races, whatever, but no more than that for me. I completely agree. The other conversation point that's kind of tied into this, and they didn't really touch on it during the survey, is the appetite for an ever-expanding calendar. My perspective, and I want to share this real quick because I'd actually thrown up a tweet earlier from my personal account, and then I retweeted it through our Scuderia F1 podcast account because I've got the ability to kind of rotate through multiple Twitter accounts <laughs> and like my post three times instead of just the once because I'm needy in that way. But I put up a quote, from my personal account saying, look, you know what? I think one of the things that makes Formula One so special is the scarcity of races. And sure. I thought that would resonate with a lot of people. And I know it does with you, but overwhelmingly the feedback from listeners out there was there is an appetite for more and that people are okay with 20 races or 23 races or 24 races or 25 races. That surprised me a little bit. Like, obviously, as far as Liberty is concerned, there's there's appetite to do this because every time you introduce a new race, you get a sanctioning fee from a contractor that's going to host the race and sell tickets and sponsorships on the ground. And every time you introduce a new race, the value of your TV network contracts increases. And every time you introduce a new race, you can increase the value of the sponsorships that you extract from your corporate partner. So from Liberty's perspective, there's definitely value. I think one of the comments that has been brought up a few times over the course of the last few weeks is increasing the calendar is not just about those three things, TV slash streaming revenue, sponsorship revenue, sanctioning fee revenue. It's really about the fact that Liberty 
as so many entertainment companies are now apt to do, are trying to create or aggregate content that they can sell online. And 23 races, 20 races, that's not really a ton of content to sell. 25 races is better, but it also ties into something that you and I talked about during the summer, which is Formula One, whether it's owned by Liberty, whether it's owned by Netflix, which has obviously been debated in the past, for them to grow as a brand, they need to buy another championship. And to me, it still makes sense that Formula One buys Indy. They bring it all under a banner. There's so many different forms of cross-promotional, cross-brand synergies that can be done. And then you can put all of this into a single streaming platform to promote and grow together. But that's all I have. I'm sorry. I, went on, I, I just realized I went on a bit of a tangent that's nowhere near related to what we were talking about. Which, you know, has become a, something I think that we we're, we're kind of notorious for. But yeah, uh, yeah, we hear that from the listeners and we see it in the comments on the iTunes reviews. Bro, never read the comments. Uh, oh. Well. <laughs> Anyways, let's take a, a quick break. When we come back on the other side, Honda has said to Red Bull, yeah, go ahead. You can design your own engine for 2026, but you can't use our intellectual property to do so. Anyways, uh, that and much more on the other side of the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. And yes, moving into the future here, sort of, kind of. So we all know that this is Honda's last year in Formula One as they prepare to pull out and focus uh, exclusively on their road cars and the electrification of said road cars. And of course, Red Bull has taken over that Honda engine IP. They're going to get uh, support from Honda for 2022 and then 2023. They're all going to be on their own. So they can do whatever they want with this engine using under its current formula or under its current guise and what uh, they have inherited and take it over from Honda. But Honda has said that when it comes to designing their own engine and anything that they've learned from what they uh, or any property that they have from Honda that they could use to develop a new engine for 2026 and beyond is uh, no bueno. They're not going to be able to do that, which I find really, really interesting. And th this is something that I had not considered before because we were talking uh, last week about uh, you know the whole prospect of the VW group as either Porsche or Audi or Volkswagen whoever it is is more likely or not going to enter into Formula One in 2026 as an engine supplier in probably a long-term capacity and we kind of toss back some some ideas of where one of these uh, manufacturers or engine suppliers may may go to which were logical teams we tossed around several names and one of those names was obviously not Red Bull but now that I, I heard these uh, comments from Honda today it's kind of really made me sit up and think that perhaps this whole Red Bull powertrains division may only be a temporary measure and that if it's going to be, because I mean, they really don't have anything to lose. I mean, this is about as, as I don't want to say cheap, but about as cost effective of, uh, you know, get, becoming your own, like a works manufacturer team in your own right as an engine manufacturer that they were going to get. I mean, Honda, you know, doing all the hard work and Red Bull taking it over for whatever they agreed upon you know all the 
all the heavy lifting's already been done. The engine formula is going to be frozen for the next uh, several years. So it really is for Red Bull a, a fantastic opportunity to move forward with which has now evolved into a very, very, very competitive power unit. But you know, Honda putting the brakes on that kind of makes me wonder. Is it practical for Red Bull and or desirable for them to continue this in the long term after 2025 if all this, you know, th th this knowledge that they have and all these, wh whatever it is that they could use to, to design this new generation of power unit is not permitted, where do they go? And I can't help but think now, perhaps could Red Bull be one of these teams that would partner with a VW or an Audi or a Porsche to move into the new era of Formula One? It really got me thinking because this was, you know, I, I started texting you about this. You're like, dude, hold up, uh, wait, we'll talk about this on the show. But this really has me going down the rabbit hole quite a ways into all the various permutations and possibilities that this might bring. I... I'm very much aligned with you. My position on this has evolved dramatically since you and I first started talking about this story. My gosh, last fall, I think, is maybe it was late summer last fall when it was announced that Honda would be exiting Formula One after 2021. More than ever, I, I think I'm prone to agree with you. And I think what's really important to understand here is Red Bull's acquisition of the Honda IP was predicated entirely on the fact that there was going to be a freeze to the engine formula from 2022 through to whenever the new engine regulations were being introduced, whether that's 2025, whether that's 2026, is still to be determined. I think now more than ever that this was a clean, gentlemanly, diplomatic political way for Honda to exit the sport as they were obligated to do because their board was no longer invested in the experiment. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great way for Red Bull to not have to go back to Renault with their tail between their legs asking for new power units. They effectively came up with an agreement that said, look, in 2025 or 2026, we're going to have all new units. The current power units are frozen, which means that, hey, Mr. Red Bull, we're handing you a template. We're handing you the tooling. All you have to do is manage this existing power unit. You don't have to upgrade it. You don't have to innovate on, on it. You just have to maintain this existing power unit. It's done. And we're going to throw a ton of resources at you to help you do that. So for, for Red Bull, it's really not a significant change. I mean, if we weren't going into a period where the power units were being frozen, I think this is a very different conversation. And I don't know that Red Bull is willing to take this on, but I think you nailed it, that this was really just about, it's a short-term runway to get them through to the new engine regulations. And I think over the course of the next 18 to 24 months, I would absolutely expect to see them partner with somebody else. And that could potentially very well be somebody within the Volkswagen Auto Group, whether mm -hmm. it's the Porsche brand, whether it's the Audi brand. And I think they will be happy to pass off the responsibility of developing the power unit to those teams. Because if you look at all the other power unit producers in the sport, well, Ferrari, they're a road car division. And Mercedes, they're a road car division. And Alpine, Renault, they're a road car division. And Honda, they're a road car division. You don't see a lot of independent engine manufacturers anymore. It's hugely expensive to do this and you can't sell that technology onto your road car division. You can't put that on a billboard. What do you do with that capability once you've built it? So I think this was a really clean way to let 
Honda step out because that's what they needed to do because of internal politics. They needed to step out. They didn't want to leave Red Bull high and dry. And Red Bull didn't want to have to go back to Renault with their tail between their legs because there was no way that Ferrari or Mercedes were ever going to partner with their chief rival. So I think you're absolutely right. This is a short-term deal that's just designed to get them to the new engine regulations, at which point they'll partner with somebody because all of the tooling, all of the IP that they bought from Honda will be worthless then because they need to develop an entirely new formula from the ground up or partner with somebody that has the expertise to do so. Yeah, which makes those, um, you know, th- those rumored stories that Audi's already uh, built and tested a Formula One power unit just that much uh, juicier. Much more tantalizing. And, yeah, no kidding, right? So th- this is certainly one that uh, we're going to have to watch uh, moving forward. Now, just a, a couple little uh, interesting ones here before we finally get into the race uh, preview, which is why we've all gathered here. So apparently Aston Martin are not really too happy with the way that uh, the green that they've used on their car has turned out this uh, year. You know, it's a little bit... Uh, too dark. It's stunning, as Otmar Safan, our team principal, says, if you're looking at it in the sun when the lighting is uh, just right. But, uh, you know, interesting enough, but perhaps not surprising, that a change to a different shade of green would uh, actually comes into the weight factor uh, in, uh, you know, the, the weight of the car for, for 2022, which is, you know, I, I thought it was kind of cool and just uh, how every little thing in a Formula One car has to uh, you know be taken into account. I love how as I'm talking, you're taking selfies in the background there. Way way to go to uh, to. I'm to sending. I'm sending there. them to. Uh, I'm sending them to listeners that are in Austin right now. Excitingly to sending me updates via via social media. That's but awesome. To, to build onto your point and not ruin the podcast, to give everyone a little bit of context, paint weight absolutely matters. Every every ounce of weight on these cars are are important because. That's why we've seen teams develop space age materials, and it's why carbon fiber was was incorporated into the design of these cars. In some cases, before you would see it in commercial airliners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Weight is valuable. And to give everyone a little bit of context, the amount of paint that teams put on their car varies from about one to two kilograms. A couple of years ago, when Red Bull made the switch from gloss to Matt, they saved about 600, 600-ish grams. So they shaved about a quarter of the paint weight from the car when they made that transition. So it absolutely does matter. So this isn't really a throwaway story. It's important because to your point, the green's not working out on the camera as they expected. The cars blend in too much. They often get confused for the Mercedes, which are rocking that paint scheme. Probably won't be quite as problematic next year if the silver arrows switch back to silver, but the color is important to the team for branding purposes. Purposes, and the weight also matters. So part of this debate is if we do change color, is it going to be heavier? And if we change color and it is heavier, do we just paint fewer parts of the car and leave raw carbon fiber weave exposed? Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it just uh, these sort of little stories I always find fascinating just how every little bit in a Formula One car really is uh, important. Especially when you say like, I mean, uh, 600 grams. I mean, we're looking at what, maybe just under two pounds about uh, a pound and yeah, about a pound and a half. I mean, which is significant uh, when you think about it. I mean, uh, for normal people like us, I mean, a pound and a half in the car is not really anything that's like, um, you know, the bag of groceries and uh, like uh, some more. But I mean, Formula One, a pound and a half, that is uh, actually significant. Okay, another story which is uh, interesting is Acura is going to be uh, returning to Formula One. 
in branding form, which will be the first time that they've appeared on a Formula One car in over 10 years. So they're going to be rocking uh, the, the Acura livery on uh, both the Red Bull and the Alpha Tauri cars uh, this weekend. And this is a kind of a, a cool one, but I mean, it's been more than a decade. They last featured, get this, on the visors of Honda's works uh, drivers at the 2007 Canadian Grand Prix. So that is a long, long, long time. But, you know, I mean, Red Bull back to their normal sort of the dark navy blue with the, the Red Bull on the airbox and the, the yellow on it. But, uh, you know, the, I think that they should have stuck with that, uh, you know, that one-off livery that they had in Turkey the other weekend. I thought that was just uh, absolutely awesome and uh, proves that Red Bull can do other things that aren't necessarily bland. All right, let's take one final break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the or look ahead to the race ahead, which is now just about an hour and a quarter closer to when you first started listening to this podcast. So thank you for spending it with us. And like I said, we're going to take a quick break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back. And again, looking at the live chat on uh, YouTube, a little bit uh, disappointed uh, that I'm going to miss out on good things. Huffles Puffle says, Daniel, welcome to Austin. Be sure to get some tacos and barbecue. So I'm going to be missing out on uh, tacos and barbecue this weekend. So hashtag sucks to be me. Well, no, not all the time, but certainly I wouldn't have minded some tacos and barbecue. So I'm going to have to try and do find a suitable alternative. And I shouldn't talk about that because it's 10th. 30 local time here on the West Coast, and I shouldn't really eat after we finish recording because it just doesn't I sit well when I, I do. Yeah, and you, then yeah. I don't sleep until 2 a.m. Yeah, exactly. That's the same problem I'm going to have. Anyways, let's look ahead to the race itself, Mark. Uh, this is uh, exciting, but we we, we we teased at this on Monday night, uh, but uh, with the recent MotoGP uh, race at the Circuit of Americas, there were a lot of bumps on the track and a lot of the riders were complaining about them. They, they, they do a lot of regular maintenance uh, work on the, uh, on the circuit there. Uh, race director Michael Massey has been uh, talking with the circuit and has asked for them to do some work on grinding down the worst of the bumps and even though that they're they're expected to to do so. Some of the drivers like Pierre Gasly think that, uh, you know, this weekend could be especially uh, difficult and tricky because, uh, you know, the bumps were there on the track. They were present when they were last there two years ago, which seems like an eternity ago. Anyways, uh, Pierre had to say, quote, I think it could be quite complicated this weekend. Having watched the MotoGP a few weeks back, the bumps, which were already uh, pretty bad last time we raced there, seem even more severe now. It will require some sort of compromise on setup but we won't really know until we get there. I'm not particularly worried about it because our car is working well everywhere at the moment and we just have to avoid any problems waiting to ambush us so we continue to close in Alpine in the championship, end quote. So this is kind of an interesting quote uh, from Gasly. It's kind of like, yeah, it's a problem, but not really. That's my takeaway. I think it is going to be a problem. I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be the dominant story this weekend. It shouldn't be as complex and problematic as it was for the MotoGP bikes. Again, the contact patch of those super bikes, those MotoGP bikes is tiny relative to what the Formula One cars have, but I do think it's going to be problematic. And it's been problematic really in the past. We saw it in 2019 when we saw a catastrophic suspension failure for Sebastian Vettel, which was terrifying. What we do know is that since 2019, about 40% of the track has been resurfaced. We know they've been aggressively grinding other sections of the track to try to take out some of the the bumping. It's, it's better to almost explain it as rippling. And I think it's as it's been described to us in the past, 
there's clay not not far under the soil and it often tends to shift which shifts the track so it almost ripples like a piece of paper when hmm. you kind of push the two ends together but that's obviously hugely problematic for the tarmac when the MotoGP bikes were there a couple of weeks ago it was very problematic one it's incredibly difficult on the bikes the bikes tend to bump and their suspensions are absolutely not designed for that type of surface so the fear is that one we're going into a track where 40 percent of it's been resurfaced since we were last there the sections that haven't been resurfaced are fairly uneven due to this rippling effect and the challenge is the FIA and Pirelli really haven't had a chance to get out there to the track due to COVID to put any cars through the paces or to really even analyze the surface so a lot of the teams well really all of the teams the FIA and Pirelli are going in a little bit blind so I think tomorrow free practice one free practice two are going to be very very interesting because I think the teams are going to have to do a lot of experimentation with their suspension setups and ideally the team's want to run the hardest suspension they can because it keeps the suspension, it keeps the chassis stiffer going into a corner so you can carry more speed. If the track's going to be incredibly ripply, it causes a couple of problems. One, it adds significant wear to the suspension and obviously uneven wear to the tires. It reduces traction because the tires are going to be bouncing over the surface as opposed to rolling over the surface. And then ultimately, it's a huge physical grind on the drivers because remember, they're basically sitting on a thin piece of foam sitting on top of the carbon fiber tub, which is directly attached to the suspension. So they're going to feel every single bump. And then the other challenge too, is if the cars are bouncing over this surface, that also reduces traction. So they're going to potentially have to carry less speed into corners. The teams are going to have to compromise for this with softer suspension settings. It's not necessarily going to be ideal. Based on the data that Pirelli did have, based on historical experience with with this track, they're going to bring in kind of the medium range tire. So the hard for this track is going to be a C2 this weekend. The middle range, it's going to be a C3 and a C4. Yep. In the past, we've seen lap times around 132 to 134. The fastest lap we've ever seen was Bottas's qualifying run in Q3 in 2019 when he set pole at 132 even, basically 132 even, 132.09. So it'll be really interesting to see what type of times teams are putting in tomorrow. And if they're lower than we've seen in the past, it's either because they're really experimenting with their suspension setups and geometry, trying to dial in a setting that compensates for the track surface, or it's going to be because the track surface is truly problematic. So that's what I'm going to be looking for tomorrow is how dialed in these teams are and what type of pace they're putting in. If they're running consistently 133, 34, 35, looks like everything's good. The surface probably shouldn't be a major issue. But if they're in the 135 to 137, there's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, actually, the fastest uh, lap that uh, that was set there was uh, back in 2019 uh, by Charles Leclerc and the Ferrari. His fastest time during the race was a 136.169. So, you know, again, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, several seconds between qualifying and uh, and the race itself. I mean, the, the circuit itself is uh, 5.51 kilometers or 3.43 miles. Total race distance is 308.41 kilometers or 191.63 miles. 56 uh, laps, like you say, 20 corners. And the most distinctive corner of all at Coda is turn one. It's an uphill, yeah, the uphill hairpin going into about, I would say, 120 degree left-hand turn. Then you go into that wonderful sweeping complex of turns through turns three all the way to turn 10. 
Then you go down into another hairpin, into turn 11, into the straightaway, and then into a, a series of uh, sharp and tight uh, corners, uh, starting at turn 12, that uh, brings you back around to the pit entrance, and then ultimately to turn 20, which uh, brings you back uh, to start to uh, finish. So, you know, it really is, uh, you know, exciting to see. I mean, uh, most recently, well, I mean, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton has won six times in the U.S., 2007, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17. Um, and I think Valtteri Bottas won the last time, did he not, 19, in 2019? He qualified on pole yeah. and took the race win. That's right. And it was interesting, too, because he had a different uh, pit strategy compared to, uh, to, to Lewis, who, um, you know, so uh, uh, Valtteri did a mar- hard, medium, hard. So he did a two-stopper. And uh, Lewis, who finished uh, second behind uh, his teammate that day, uh, did a, a medium, hard stint. So, you know, it's quite uh, quite interesting. But I can't help but thinking if the, the, the track is really ripply and bumpy, like you're saying, if that's going to, you know, really add into the tire wear and see if we're going to see more of the drivers going for that medium, hard combo during uh, during the race uh, I- itself. But yeah, you know, uh, it, it's going to be uh, good to watch of course, and Ferrari, the most winningest team in the USA. I mean, there's been 49 Grand Prix in the United States uh, for the, you know, during the history of Formula One. Ferrari won there for the first time in 75, most recently in 2018 when Kimi Raikkonen won. And uh, obviously that was uh, one for his, uh, you know, his fans. And I guess we never really expected uh, another win from Kimi. So that was a bit uh, memorable. Two teams tied on eight races each, Lotus and McLaren. Lotus won as recently as 1973, so not that recent. But McLaren has not won a race in the USA since 2012. And, well, I mean, based on the fact that uh, they've been so racy and so competitive this year and actually won a race uh, recently, I I wouldn't completely discount them. I mean, uh, of course, this one's going to be between uh, Mercedes and Red Bull, but I think you have to maybe give a shout-out to to McLaren to maybe being a bit of a dark horse pick for this this, uh, weekend. And then uh, Mercedes has won three times, sorry, six times in the USA. One of that was, uh, one of those was a, a non-championship race way back in 1910, but uh, it's been all Mercedes Dakota recently winning in 14, 15, 16, 17, and 19. Of course, we didn't have a race there last year and uh, certainly looking forward to uh, getting uh, getting back there and watching that, uh, you know, just in several hours from now. Yeah, a reminder as well, because I had forgotten this because 2019 seems like an eternity ago, but the podium in 2019 was, to your point, Bottas finished not because he wasn't challenged by Hamilton, because he and Hamilton had an epic scrap on the last couple of laps towards the conclusion of that Grand Prix. Bottas won, but Lewis actually secured his sixth championship on that day. So he won his sixth championship at Coda with two races to spare. And I'd forgotten that 2019 was that odd year too, where they had reversed Mexico and Coda. So we went to Mexico City and then Coda, where typically we would do Coda, Mexico City, Brazil, and then hop over to the Middle East. That year, they reversed Coda and Mexico City, but he won the championship with two races to spare. This year, of course, is a little bit different because after Coda, we're going to have five races to go. So no threat of anybody sealing the championship this year. And then, of course, third place on the podium that year was surprise, surprise, Max Verstappen. But the one stat that did stick with me from that year was the top three finishers finished 50 seconds clear of the fourth place finisher, which really speaks to the fact that on a good dry day, this is very much a track that is set up for powerful cars. But I love Coda for 
of all the newly designed dedicated circuits. I think this is one of my favorites. One of the things that I think surprises a lot of people, including a lot of people I think that live in Texas is the elevation and you see it right from the jump. You spoke to it. Turn one, all uphill, a super sharp left-hander, 120 degrees, and then it drives right into that flowing, sweeping number of turns. We have two big DRS zones, one which is activated, the activation zone is immediately before, actually maybe not immediately before, but somewhere between turns 10 and 11. And then we have a second active or DRS zone with an activation zone immediately before turn 19. I love the track. I can't wait to see it. It obviously plays well into the power cars. I think it's going to be a great battle between Mercedes and Red Bull. And I'm dying to know your prediction, my friend. Uh, you know, just uh, based on the fact that uh, that Lewis has won there six times in his uh, career, I, I think that uh, you know you got to give uh, you know make him the pick uh, to win this one, and and I think that we've seen that the the sort of on again off again dynamic uh, between Mercedes or I guess the pendulum that sort of swings back between uh, Mercedes and, and Red Bull I think has swung a little bit back uh, towards uh, Mercedes in in recent uh, races so you know Turkey was a, a an interesting uh, race a couple of weeks ago but uh, you know that uh, doesn't necessarily indicate what's going to happen at uh, Coda here uh, this uh, this weekend but I I have a feeling that it's going to be a little bit more Mercedes but having said that uh, too it would be uh, interesting to see if they are ahead of uh, Red Bull. You know, what is the the, the gap uh, going to be? Because, I mean, Max was quite upfront in Turkey a couple of weeks back saying that they just didn't have the pa- uh, the, the pace to match uh, Mercedes and to win that race. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that's kind of been the, the, the story. But, I mean, that, that's been said on both sides of the equation all season long as, uh, you know, the ebb and flow and the back and forth between Red Bull, the back and forth between, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with Red Bull. So... It's sometimes it's a little bit uh, too close to call, but I think just based on his history and the, the fact that Lewis has always done well, I think he'll uh, he'll do well there. But uh, like I say, I think uh, McLaren's a bit of a dark horse in this one. Uh, I mean, uh, it was a little bit, uh, dis- I mean, they had several good races and then the last uh, time out uh, in Turkey was uh, obviously a little bit uh, disappointing, but maybe not ideal conditions for the McLaren. So uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. How about yourself? Are you going with, uh, with, with Lewis for this one or are you going to go with Max or are you going to go with somebody else? I wouldn't be surprised if it was Lewis. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Max. I'm hoping it's Lewis because like I said, I want the I want the lead to alternate back and forth through the next four or five Grand Prix leading into the finale so that we have a nail biter of a conclusion to what's been a really great 2021 campaign. I think it's going to be a clean race in terms of intermittent weather. It should be dry. It should be yeah. hot. I think what I'm really interested in seeing during this race is how Ferrari and McLaren stack up. They've had a couple of weeks off. We're heading to a power track. I'd love to see how those two teams set up. Obviously, McLaren is, as we now know, the most popular sport in Formula One, driven in no small part to the fact that the fans in the United States have absolutely embraced that team. And to be fair, there's an absolute McLaren resurgence in the United Kingdom as well. They're just doing everything for, right from a branding perspective. Yep. Their drivers 100%. are lovable. But I would love to see how Ferrari looks. I had put in that prediction when we did our mid-season predictions during the summer break that Ferrari would finish ahead of McLaren in the championship. They brought some upgrades, some power unit upgrades. They were a little bit later than we expected. They're in both cars. They're fully in force. 
I'm dying to see how Ferrari and McLaren stack up this weekend. Yeah, that that's a, a great shout to Ferrari because I mean, uh, like you say, I mean they, they they have put these extra bits on the engines in recent times. Both Charles and uh, Carlos have uh, taken those grid penalties to get the new um, you know power unit elements on the car. So yeah, I mean it's it's really tight in the constructors for that third uh, spot. I mean uh, Ferrari is only. Uh, seven and a half points back of uh, McLaren for that uh, that third spot. I mean, we usually don't do half points on this show, but uh, this time, in this case, it gives a little bit more context. I mean, at the top, there's a little bit more of a gap uh, between uh, Mercedes and Red Bull. It's uh, 433 and a half for Mercedes and 397 and a half uh, for Red Bull. But then on the driver's side, of course, it's a, a little bit uh, tighter. I mean, uh, Max 262 and a half compared to 256 and a half uh, for, for Lewis. And then, uh, you know, there's a country mile between the pair of them and Valtteri Bottas who's currently third in the sorry in the drivers uh, with 177 and then Lando with 145 and then Sergio Perez with 135 so I you know I I think it's a little bit of a stretch at this point in the season to I mean obviously we, we want to see this championship uh, battle between Max and Lewis go down to the very end and really prolong what's been a, a very eventful and enjoyable uh, season thus far but I, I think that uh, that Bottas in, unless he encounters like a run of really miserable luck I mean being you know 30 something points ahead of uh, Lando in the championship that seems like a little bit uh, too big of a gap uh, for, for Lando to really close and really make a serious push for third in the in the drivers at this point i mean what is uh, one to, to, to really look uh, out for is uh, sergio perez who's only 10 points behind lando in the drivers uh, you know championship i mean sergio like we've we've talked about uh, at length over the, the the course of the entire season is kind of blown hot and cold and maybe a little bit more cold than hot uh, when it was really needed but i i think sergio is really going to have his uh, sights uh, you know set on catching norris in the championship uh, which i mean when you, when you think about it i mean anything other than the top four finish for a red bull uh, driver would be uh, you know a, a bit of a disappointment and but it's not going to be easy because i mean mclaren have proved especially in the second half of the season that they're they're not pushovers i mean they're a very competitive uh, team they're very got a, obviously a very competitive car and especially in the hands of uh, Lando Norris, who's been in that team for a couple of years and obviously understands and gets the the, the feel of the car, it's uh, just going to be that much more difficult uh, for for, uh, for Sergio Perez, but certainly uh, something uh, to look forward to uh, watching. I mean, of course, like I say, the big thing is the championship between Max and Lewis. But I mean, there are lots of other equally juicy and interesting threads and storylines to follow the rest of the season. Definitely. The other thing that I'll be looking for this weekend that's off the track is I'm really excited to see what the fan reaction is to this mm-hmm. event. It's not just that we haven't been to Coda in two years. It's just the f- sport has had a renaissance in the United States as it has in many countries. Unlike anything I think anyone could have expected two or three years ago. I think if you were the race organizers at the Circuit of the Americas in 2018 and somebody would come to you and say, hey, in 2021, during a pandemic, we are going to have a blockbuster sellout and demand for tickets that we've never seen before. Nobody would believe you. I'm excited for everybody that's going. I have a serious case of FOMO. I'm seriously hashtag <laughs> jealous. I want to be there. I'm dying to be there. We'll be there next year for certain. But at the same time, I wish everybody has a blast. They yeah, have absolutely. fun. They stay safe. Wear a hat wear comfortable shoes, stay hydrated, soak it up. And if I can give any last minute advice to people, it's get there early, especially if you have general admission, get there early on Friday, soak it all in, walk the track, 
Look at every vantage point. If you have general admission, take the opportunity on Friday to stake out some really great spots. Get there early on Saturday. Get there early on Sunday. Race to those spots. Keep them. Friday, have fun. Enjoy the circuit. It's going to be far less busy than it will be on Saturday. Soak it all in. Buy your merch on Friday. The lineups will be much shorter. Don't wait, but just have fun and soak it up. And just enjoy being around the fact that you're going to be surrounded by tens of thousands of people that are as passionate about a sport as you are that isn't necessarily normal. You know, when you go to work every day, you know everyone's going to be talking NFL, college basketball, NBA. In the world of Formula One, when you're part of this community, it's rare sometimes that you encounter somebody that is a Formula One fan, and typically you embrace that moment. Like, that guy's wearing a Ferrari cap. I'm going to go strike up a conversation. Enjoy the fact that for two or three days, you're going to be surrounded by tens of thousands of people that are as passionate about the sport as you are. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. And also look out for our friends from the Race Weekend magazine. They're going to be at some of the different uh, shuttle bus uh, pickup uh, points and drop-off points. Very distinctive uh, branding, red and white uh, Alfa Romeo cars. So definitely check them out and say hi to our friend Magnus if you see him. And that's it. Uh, very much like uh, Mark was saying, uh, I'm jealous and, and very envious of all of you that uh, actually get to be there in person. We're going to be living vicariously through you over the next uh, couple of days. And uh, with that, we're going to leave you to it. Thank you so very much for downloading and uh, listening to the show. Thank you for getting in touch and enjoy the weekend it's going to be wonderful hoping for a great uh, race and uh, if you want to get in touch by all means do so send us an email at scooteriaf1pod at gmail.com get in touch via twitter at scooteriaf1pod and with that gentlemen let's go play some football we are eyes full hearts and that's it everyone take care bye for now <laughs>